and welcome to Race Cars and Jail Bars. I'm your host, Jesse Gleason. It's my turn to host, and with me is my brother and co-host, Brent Gleason. Hello. We are local racers who like true crime, and so we came up with this show and kind of mixed the two together, and voila, this is what we have. Right. We made the decision, if you listened to last week's episode on John West Townley, we made the decision to uh, switch off being hosts and uh, share some research duties. And uh, I think it works out because instead of doing it bi-weekly, now we can do it every week and people can keep uh, tuned in and keep some uh, tabs on us. You yeah, know what I mean? The research can be, can be just as long, but we could take turns hosting and we get it quicker and it's more fun that way. Oh, I'll tell you about research so. at the end of the show. <laughs> That's right. This ain't my show. This is Jesse's show this week. <laughs> Jesse's got a story. It's going to be pretty interesting because I don't think I've ever heard this story. So I'm really interested to hear what it is. I know who he's talking about, but I don't think I've ever heard the story. So yeah, I'm today's year old, and before I researched this show, I had no idea that this happened to one of the greatest drivers in the world. We're going to get to it right away, but we just want to get this out of the way. Number mm -hmm. one, this is a true crime podcast, so we're going to be talking about some fucked up shit sometimes. and uh, Have salty language. Yeah, so uh, number two, uh, why are you listening to true crime if you're triggered by fucked up shit? <laughs> If you complain negatively because you heard it without a warning, well, that's on you. That's your fault. So we, don't give us shit about it. <laughs> we make fun of idiots and jerks, but we won't make fun of the victims or, or their families. We're going to keep it tasteful, but we like to keep it light. Unless they deserve it. Yeah, unless you know, unless they deserve it, there's always that case. But usually not. Yeah. If, if you're an innocent party, we're not going to make fun of you. That's just cruel. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> All right. So with the disclaimer out of the way, let's just dive into this story anyway. I'm interested. So yeah, we're talking about Juan Manuel Fangio. And for those who don't know, Juan Manuel Fangio is arguably one of the greatest race car drivers of all time. He is widely regarded oh. as one of, if not the greatest racing car drivers of all yeah, time. I had no idea he got fucking kidnapped in, in Cuba. I'm going to go into it, but for way those to, who don't know. Way to give it away. No. Uh, <laughs> That's going to be kind of the title of the show, anyway. Oh so, yeah. So I mean, we're gonna we gotta talk about the details because of course, yeah, yeah. He gets kidnapped. The greatest racing car driver in the world gets kidnapped, and I had no idea that this ever fucking happened. So I'm interested. <laughs> I'm really interested. for those who don't know who Juan Manuel Fangio is, we're gonna go into a little history about him and everything. Get a little background into him and and what happened to what are the events that led to his kidnapping. Mm. So, let's see. Short history about Juan Manuel Fangio. He had one of the most prolific careers of any driver in human history. And he was uh, born in Argentina in Ju on June 24th, 1911. 1911? Holy. 1911. I didn't realize how old he actually Well, he's long dead by now let's be fair but i mean if you were born in 1911 you got to be dead by now for quite a while but i hope so uh, yeah for your <laughs> really sake do. i hope you are why isn't god <laughs> forgotten about me why yes. why won't i die yes yeah <laughs> yeah he was born to italian immigrants in argentina loretto makes... and hermenia fangio that makes Ooh. sense Good luck, I butchered that, but what the fuck ever. Well, if it was after World War II, we'd know why they were there, but... Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well yeah. no, actually, if they were Germans, it would really make sense. Yeah, but no, they yeah, were Italian. Yeah, they would so. be something, Bernstein yeah. something. Yeah, they'd something open German a, name. Yeah, they'd open a ski resort. Yeah, he's not from Baraletra. Mm. That's it. Okay. So, like earlier subjects of the short history of this podcast... Very short. <laughs> we're only on episode three, people. Yeah, yeah guess what? He drops out of school before he's finished. So, Shocking. Yeah, imagine that. I mean, I think last week was the only one who made it through high school with John West Townley. Yeah, yeah, and, col and some college. So far. at Yeah, 13, Fangio worked as an auto mechanic at 13 years old. Well, it makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. Eventually, he owned up his own garage and started racing in local events. He began racing in Argentina at the age of 24, 1936. 24? 24 is when he started. You know, Why, uh, back in the day, that was actually kind of young. Nowadays, it's like, wow, you're over the hill. Because well, usually kids get in the car when they just come out of the womb, they throw them in a go-kart with a weed whacker motor <laughs> on it. In that day and age, most racing drivers are usually tragically perish and, get, and be he, killed. The, Very the most, dead. The most amazing thing about guys like Fangio and, jeez, uh, like Sterling Moss and all these guys who raced in that era... If you looked at a race car, it would kill you. Like, they didn't have seatbelts. 
they didn't have like helmets. They had like a leather bag that they put over their head to keep their brain in when they, you know, eventually fly out of the car. Right. Pretty much it. Pizza maybe cutters some, for tires. Yeah, maybe some goggles. Yeah. And then you just jump into a car that's literally got a hundred gallon fuel tank. Brakes made out of sponges. And cheese. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes out and just dominates. It's hilarious. Him and Moss, they were amazing. I don't even remember what his win percentage is. I'm sure you'll get into it later. Yes, I will. All right. Uh, yeah. By nineteen forty and forty one, Fangio was Argentinia's Argentina. Uh, yeah. That's close enough. I gave it an extra eye, like aluminium. Yeah, why do they do that anyway? <laughs> like the if you look it up in the do- if you look it up in a dictionary, it says aluminum, not aluminium. Yeah, I think that's a different element altogether. But that's for another day to argue. Yeah. So forty and forty one, he was the national champion, which makes him what thirty? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> By 31. that point, and well, after a rude interruption called World War Two. Mm. Fonjo just kept beating the living shit out of everyone he raced against. Makes sense because of his win percentage. Most of his race wins and a lot of his uh, racing was point-to-point races, and they stretched like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles. Kind of like something like the Millie Miglia. And, yeah, he um, raced the Millie Miglia. The trophy, won that in 53. I forgot what the hell they had also, like the trophy. Uh, there's, there's something Floria or something yeah the, the, I forgot there's so many Italian and Argentinian and Brazilian names for all these races I am not good at foreign languages I mean, and I'm gonna butcher them horrifically if I try to but look them up they, they used to do what they were over the road rally type races weren't they yes they would basically stretch from one end of the country to the other and they would range uh, from sea level to like 15,000 feet in elevation it's like Argentina is one long giant country and one giant peninsula in South America. It's just like go to one end of the country, turn around, and come back. Isn't it the Andes Mountains down there too? Yeah, is that something like that? Somewhere around there, some awful fuck road. Again, I I went to college, but it wasn't for geography. Let's be fair. Yeah, he'd take his trusty red Chevrolet and just destroy people. Really, Chevrolet? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he. They had, do have a big southern South American presence, don't they? But they they always have like they different did at types the time. of cars. They yeah. did at the time. They do now too. I mean, in nineteen forty-seven, Argentinian president Juan Perón, his wife was Evita. The I was just going to say what? Yeah, the don't yeah the don't <laughs> cry for me, Argentina woman Madonna? or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he thought that, well, motorsport would be a good propaganda tool to get the country's uh, attention on the world stage and boost his morale for the citizens. Sounds fascist to me. Well, (laughs) kind of. That's typically what dictators do is we need better morale. Give the people cake type of thing. Yeah, Yeah. you know, like the NFL. (laughs) (laughs) And, And sports betting and fantasy leagues. Yeah, well, they give them sounds familiar as well, so. So, yeah, the Perón-led government brought the 35, yes, 35-year-old Fangio, a Maz- he bought him a, Fer- a Maserati to take on the European Grand Prix races. Wow. In 1949, Fangio won four out of six Grand Prix. Yeah, they only ran six races. Like, I'm looking at 1955, which is one of the most famous years in motorsports for good or bad, let's be fair. And there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, because the Indy 500 was con- con- uh, included in the points, apparently. Yeah. So, yeah, they didn't race a lot. No, but the first ever world championship like season was 1950. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, and he was the favorite to win that. But he, he didn't end up winning it, but his first championship came in 51. Oh, okay, so he made up for it. Then 54. I had a little break. Then 1955. Yeah, yeah, I was looking at that year. Yeah. Then 1956. Oh. Then 1957. So he really made up for it then. <laughs> he won He won <laughs> it four years in a row. Five. He's a five-time world champion and won it four years in a row. In the first seven years of Formula One, he's won it five times. Against really good drivers. Like I said, he's going against absolute heroes of the sport. And again, the these cars, if you even touched it, it was going to kill you. I mean... Think about driving something that nowadays would drive horrifically, but back then it was the lightest, fastest, most powerful thing you possibly could, even if it was on like a four-inch tire. Uh, and they were sliding them around countrysides with no guardrails or even guardrails, uh, cliffs and uh, rocky ledges. Trees. And, uh, trees. Hay and, bales. Uh, yeah. People. Sheep. Churches. 
Yes. Um, all sorts of other stuff just littering the racetrack, and people died constantly. And it was just a if if you even lived through that, it was amazing. Much less dominate at thirty five. At thirty five years old, thirty six, thirty seven. See now that's funny, but back then it was normal. Well, no, even back then that was really, oh, really? weird that he was old, he was an old guy. It was hmm. weird because he was racing at twenty year olds. Maybe I'm thinking about NASCAR. Yeah, I know no, a lot was, of guys. It back was in weird the, because yeah. he was like the grand old man of the sport, and he was beating hmm. guys that he could have been his father. Really? Yeah. So not much has changed then. Yeah, well, all right. His greatest race is one of the Formula One's most iconic races, and it was the 1957 German Grand Prix at the 14 mile Nurburgring. They raced that long ass course until at least what the 70s. Yeah, yeah, because that's where um, what's his face from that movie Rush, Nicky Lauda. Yeah, Nicky Lauda. (laughs) Thank you. I knew if I said movie, we'd get it. That's where he had his incident, was on the big course. Yes. And I don't remember them racing it after that because they said there was too much distance between marshals. So they had like a purpose-built GP course. But I don't remember how long it lasted for, but yeah, imagine it was about racing. about that time. That was about it. Imagine racing on that track for 14 miles plus a lap. Jesus. Yeah. Um, a lot of people died. <laughs> that just goes without saying. Well, he really needed to win this race in 1957 to clinch his fifth world title with two races left in the season. But he really, really wanted this one bad just to get it over with. I mean, why wouldn't you? Why not? Uh, right. Late in the race, uh, there was a bad pit stop. Uh, we put him almost a minute behind the Ferraris of Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins. That name sounds awful familiar, Mike Hawthorne. He was a really good Formula One and sports car driver. Was he not? Was he a part of the um, Le Mans incident in the 1955? Yes, he was, and I'm going to go into that in a little bit because Fangio was really close to that. So, what year are we in? 57. Oh, okay, so we're going to go back. Yeah, okay. we're going to go back. No big deal. We have to go back. No big deal. So anyway, he lost a minute in the pits, and he's just got fire in his eyes right now he's he's knows he has a lot of time to make up and again back in the day they didn't have air guns to change tires they were knockoffs yes and the tire changer lost the wheel nut under the car See, he had to go dig under the car to go put it back on after he got the tire on yeah they didn't have air guns they had a hammer to change the tires. Just ding, 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 on. Yeah. And ding, it, ding, ding, off. Ding, yeah, ding. You hit yeah. the shit with a hammer. That's why they call them knockoffs. Yes. It's funny to watch pit stops back in the day where the guy dives over the wall with a big two-pound hammer in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> so, for, yeah, after that, with fire and blood in his eyes, Fangio produced the fastest stint of racing ever seen in Formula One. He broke the lap record time after time again, which culminated in lap 20 being 11 seconds faster than the Ferraris. Holy crap, he that broke, is eating it. He broke the existing track record by 12 seconds, three consecutive laps. It was like 12 it, seconds around the Nürburgring, uh, three laps in a row. Yes, he actually got... He got it down to like not, not a little bit north of eight minutes. That's f- in fifty-seven. It was like almost a nine-minute lap. That's actually really fast. Yeah, and like he had modern a- street, like modern supercars are doing it in like six, seven minutes now. But he's in a roadster <laughs> with no roll cage, no, no seatbelt, four-inch tires. Like I said. And he's pulling eight, nine-minute laps at the Nurburg. That's amazing. On the final lap, he hunted them down and passed them. I'm sure he the passed tra- both of them. I'm sure the track was a little shorter back then, maybe, but... It was 14 miles still. I mean, it's still <laughs> I mean, 14 <laughs> miles, yeah. It might have been the same length. I don't even know. I didn't look into yeah, it. He won by just about three seconds, and that day he claimed his fifth world championship crown, and it would be the last he's ever won. It'd be his last win ever, actually, too. Really? Yeah, and he did it in a three-year-old underpowered Maserati 250F. It was wow. a 1954 car. It was an old, tired-out piece of garbage. He was carried away on on the crew members' shoulders and everything in Victory Lane, and and uh, and so he said after that, I I told myself that never, never again was I going to drive like <laughs> I did that day. He scared himself. He was 46 years old. Fangio was at that time yes holy sh- how fast is this man age <laughs> oh my god Mike Hawthorne said that Peter Collins and I finished first and second in the class for mere mortals that's high praise 
And yeah, he, yeah, Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins went to Victory Lane and rubbed his bald head and just just were laughing <laughs> and joking and saying, "Oh my God, that was the greatest thing that I've ever seen." Wow. It, yeah, there was a big lot of camaraderie and everything. It was phenomenal. Back so when, yeah, back when they were just happy to you know live through the race. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, it's so bad. It was it was heroic. But that's cool. I like the camaraderie. I appreciate that type of stuff. Yeah. So he was 46 years old then, and it also happened to be 46 years until Michael Schumacher broke Fangio's record of five world titles. Wow. That is uh, that's quite amazing that Formula One held that record for so long. That's a long time. Yeah, that is a lot. Oh, yeah, almost a lifetime. For, well, some, for some racers, it is more than a lifetime, <laughs> especially back then. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> So when all was said and done on his career, Juan Manuel Fangio won 51 Formula One races and won 24 of them. He ran 51 races and won 24. Yeah, that's almost a coin flip. That's 47.1. That Yeah, that's 47.1% of the races he's entered, he won in Formula One. He won Monaco a few times. He, had, he won the 12 hours of Sebring a few times. It's estimated that Fangio ran about 200 total big races in his career, ranging from Formula One to smaller Formula-type cars, sports cars, touring cars, Model Ts. He ran Model Ts, too. <laughs> and from Model Ts to a Maserati 250F, that's a lot of range, Brent. And Model Ts don't exactly drive like a normal car. It's like, throw the uh, throw advance into it with the little thing on the steering wheel, and you got to release yeah. this clutch and release, release this Release the clutch. lever of umbriage. It's probably easier to drive a train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he won 82 out of 200 races that I could find. Wow. 82. 82 out, out of, of 200. Do you have the percentage for that? Because I'm no math wizard. Uh, no, I don't. I right. have it right here. That's it cool. is 41%. That's insane. Yeah. Forty-one percent of his entire career, he won. Also, in his Formula One records, he has the highest percentage of pole positions, fifty-five point seven. Jeez, he has the highest percentage of front row starts, ninety-four point one percent. So, if he didn't start on the front row in any of his races, it was a rarity, right? And it would Jeez. be some extenuating circumstances. He also happens to be the oldest world champion at forty-six years, forty-one days. Well, yeah, back then it was more about talent and skill and bravery than it is precision and uh, physical, I guess, conditioning, because that's kind of what it is. His now. conditioning was amazing. Oh, he, was, he had he actually, to have because he didn't have like, he didn't have like, you know, power steering or any of that stuff, and he had to hold himself up in the car. He was one of the first ones to actually use strength and conditioning and run, do exercises and everything to keep up with it. Yeah. He was. He had. He's also the world champion with the most teams. That's four. He won it for Alpha, yeah, Alpha Romeo, mm. Ferrari, Mercedes, mm-hmm. Maserati. Wow, four of them. You yeah, see so that nowadays. That's why. Yeah, he he was called the Maestro by his peers. That's El, El Maestro. El Maestro. Yeah, the Maestro. So we were talking about earlier that it was amazing that he's lived as long as he has, mm-hmm. and he's had. Quite a few close calls. As you would back in the day, because, man, if you didn't, you weren't racing hard enough. And those cars, let's be fair, weren't built of the greatest materials, kind of like they are today, but they were basically trucks with really, really big tires and really big gas tanks. It was and like a, <laughs> you take a bomb off a plane and gut it and use that for a body. That's pretty much it. <laughs> that's that's it. pretty much Trapedo. it. Yeah. Yeah, anything to get him as fast as they can. Right. So we're going to backtrack a little bit. Like one of his first close calls was in October 48. He suffered a major tragedy in just a grueling race, a, a timed point-to-point race like a rally, basically yeah, a rally. Yeah, one of the over-the-road rally types races. Yeah, he went from Buenos Aires to Caracas, Venezuela. It was a 20-day event covering a distance of around 6,000 miles. It was 5,950 miles that is humongous they had to go through argentina bolivia peru ecuador colombia venezuela oh the lot yeah fancia with his co-driver daniel urita battled hard with brothers juan and oscar galvez and domingo merriman throughout the whole race the 20 days so six 
thousand miles. Well, just shy of and it was six thousand miles. And it was close. That's a humor. Can you imagine how far away would six thousand miles be in like this country? That's like here to Hawaii. I don't fuck know. <laughs> I think it is. I don't know. Yeah, hop on this boat real quick. Yeah. So on the tenth day of this race on on the Lima to Tombez stage in northern Peru on the coastal roads along the Pacific Ocean, Fangio was driving at night in the thick fog generated from the ocean in niche in near pitch black darkness when he approached a left hander at 140 kilometers an hour, which is about 87 miles an hour. Yeah. Near the village of Huanchacho, not far from Trulido. Yeah. With the lights not helping him much, he approached it a little too fast and he lost control and he went down an embankment. His co driver, Yurito, was thrown out of the car through the front windshield. Yeah, Ouch. Actual... That's insult to injury. Isn't that an op- is that an open top car or is it not? No, it's a closed top car. Actually. Oh, it's a regular car. I do car. have links to like the car that they have. They dragged it back up the hill and you saw the Yee. hole through the window. And everything. Was it 1948? I'm going to look that up yeah. now. Oscar Galvez, who was the overall race leader, ended up was behind him because that's how point-to-point races sometimes work, is that the leader of the actual race can be behind you and try to catch up. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I found it. Yeah. So he stopped to help Fangio. Fangio had neck injuries, and they also found his badly injured co-driver. Another competitor, Luciano Marcia, Stopped and took Fangio and Eureka to the nearest hospital in the town of uh, Chope, uh, Chocope. I, I have no idea. It was about a 30-mile drive. Yeah. He, they put him on the hood of the cars and everything. Fangio was trying to get the the leader of the race to say, hey, listen, just abandon me. Let me go. You know, We'll figure it out or whatever. Yeah, keep, but, run, keep racing. But Don't worry about me. But he didn't. But, uh, yeah, the other competitor brought him both to the hospital. Fangio obviously had some injuries but the uh his co-driver had a basal or skull fracture and just Ooh, was beat up that's not good yeah uh let's see uh merriman won the race and uh the race was a disaster there was a bunch of other deaths there was spectators that got chewed up oh my god that happened all the time if you look back in the history of these point to points yeah it was it was just all guys running off the road dying in the middle of the night fans getting run down just it was always just complete chaos yeah it was just a mess they i think they've essentially banned them even the famous ones like the milli miglia and all these other ones yeah those are gone you can't like, they've been gone for a long time the only thing so. left is like the baja yeah even that's pretty dangerous yeah well fast forward to 1952 fangio was in between rides because alpha pulled out of auto racing and he was racing in a non-championship points race in the Dundrod circuit in the streets of Lisburn in Northern Ireland. I was about to say, what? And so then <laughs> after that, he agreed to race in another like non-championship uh, F1 race in Monza for Maserati, hoping for a new contract. Hmm. So It's a home race for you know, them. He was trying to get a flight, but he ended up missing the connecting flight. And so he had to drive through the night on pre-motorway mountain roads so it's basically from the Alps. Sing- single lane roads through the mountains from the Alps from Yeesh. Lyon traveling and he arrived about a half an hour before the start well at least he got there no sleep no yeah, nothing you don't need that arrived at Monza no practice no sleep drink a coffee totally fatigued drink a coffee smoke a cigarette you'll be fine the race organizers actually did, weren't even going to let him race because he wasn't he didn't practice to qualify the car oh don't be a baby but the other racers, the other racers, the race car drivers said, no, let him, let him compete. That's fine. And he, they ended up putting him last on the grid. That's and fair. So he was, so he was able to start the race. Again, that's fair. So anyway, he, so he, on the second lap, he entered, he lost control a little bit, crashed into a grass bank with hardened hay bales and was thrown out of the car as it flipped end over end, smashing through trees. The accident blew his shoes off his feet and whatever his crash helmet was scraped all down the left side. Well, at least he had something on. He was taken to the hospital in Milan with multiple injuries. The most serious was a broken neck. He broke his neck in it. Oh. He broke his neck. (laughs) Didn't die. I was like, oh, he's great then. Oh, he broke his neck. That's not so great. No, no. No, that's not great. The race winner, Giuseppe Farina, visited Fangio in the hospital and gave him the winner's reef. He well, spent, that was kind of him. Yeah, he spent the rest of 1952 recovering in Argentina. He 
he wasn't racing at all in 52. He was done after that year. Yeah, I don't think you want to try to do that at that point. He couldn't turn his head to the right. He had to turn his whole body in order to, from, from the rest of his life. Oof, that's rough. And in 1955, he was in the 24 hours of the Le Mans race, driving for Mercedes-Benz in the 300 SLR. That sounds familiar. Yep, Fangio and his co-driver Sterling Moss were favored to win the race. How could you not bet against them? It's the two best drivers in the damn world. You got Fangio and Sterling Moss in the same car. You might as well just not even show up. Christ. Well, Fangio was in a hell of a battle with Mike Hawthorne in the, in the Jaguar D-type. Mm. He They were just going at it. And and Hawthorne was leading just by a few lengths, and then all of a sudden, like on lap thirty-five, his crew says, "Yo, you got to come pit, come pit." Oh, so he gave him the board and told him to come in. Yeah, and and, and uh, let's see, there was Peter Levey was uh, he was already lapped down in a Mercedes. He was Fangio's teammate, and Pierre, he was in between Fangio and Hawthorne. Oh, Pierre Levey. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I and, I misheard you. I'm sorry. Yep. He was in between Fangio, Hawthorne, and Lance Macklin's uh, Austin Healy. And as the pits, you pull off to the pits, you pull off to the right, and it's kind of a blind corner. Yeah, back it's in the shitty and narrow. Back in the day at Le Mans, it was a blind corner before they put the chicanes in and and like lengthen yeah. the track out. And the pit area had no wall in between the racetrack and the pits. Yeah, so Hawthorne passes Macklin because he's you know he's got a piece of shit Austin Healy. He's probably in a different class. Different class. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they say, pit, 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 and then, you know, radios or nothing. They're like, oh, shit, i got to go in the narrow pit entrance. And he had to stop, turn real quick right away. It's blind and narrow. And Fangio was just getting ready to pass Peter LeVay. And those state-of-the-art, they had disc brakes on the G-type Jags. In 1955, wow. Yeah, the, the uh, 300 SLRs had drums, so they weren't. But they had more power. Yeah. But again, a lot of innovation for your streetcar comes from racing. So yeah, I mean Yeah. So I'm that, sure it existed before, but you know, when you perfect it through racing, then you So can those use it. brand new disc brakes, they really slowed him down by a lot. And it caught Macklin by surprise and he had to swerve to avoid contact and well, LeVay and Fangio were bearing down on the pit entrance and well while Macklin was there. LeVay raised a hand up to signal to Fangio, hey, there's impending disaster head. And he just couldn't slow down in time. Mm-hmm. So with one hand off the wheel and everything, he just launched off the ramp at 140 miles an hour. Just off, It was like a ramp. Yeah, it, who's, the, the Healy was like a ramp, and it ended. It launched him skyward. He ran up over uh, Macklin's car? Yeah, launched right up over. There was just the sheer speed and centrifugal force bent spinning massive metal and mankind and there's lots of somersaults the flinging the driver and the car parts everywhere the front axle and the engine block were ripped from their mounts and hurled onto the shock crowd the hood went spinning like a circular saw just mowing people down just cutting them right in half just yeah cutting heads off cutting people in half it was such an awful disaster like it was if you ever, if you're a racing fan, you know all about the 1955 Le Mans disaster. But, yeah, we're not saying anything new here. Well, yeah, exactly. This is exactly what happened. But um, I think it was, God, it was yeah, the car got launched up into the crowd. Uh, parts and pieces took out more people in the crowd. I think what 83 people died. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, the, the fuel tank ruptured. The magnesium alloy body ignited into like a white hot inferno. Yeah, they, they had hours. It was magnesium. Magnesium is bad. It it, it burned for hours. Yeah, it couldn't. They couldn't put it out. Uh, have you ever have you ever seen magnesium stuff like old drag race wheels that were made out of magnesium? They're it's amazing to touch these things because they're so lightweight and it's like so strong if they catch fire they'll never go out so it's like i don't want to have that on my car i'll just i'll stick with aluminum so levey was obviously killed instantly yeah once he went over that wall it was game over and uh, meanwhile fangio was able to avoid that wreck yeah with the quick signal with levey and avoided the careening uh, Austin Healy of Macklin, and as it crashed into the head, into the pit wall, and bounced back across the track. Yeah, because he hit 
Um, I think LeVay hit Macklin in the left rear of the car and it pushed him back towards the inside wall yeah. to the right. Yeah, Macklin walked away and the race actually continued on as the death toll mounted as they were counting people and body parts and putting them together and everything. Yeah, the race just kept going. It kept going on into the night until finally in the overnight hours when no one was around, orders came down from Mercedes-Benz and Stuttgart to pull the remaining two 300 SLRs from the race out of respect for the victims. Mm-hmm. The Fangio Moss Mercedes was leading by a lap over the Jaguar of Hawthorne over the, at the time. Yeah. 83 people did die and about 150 people were injured. Uh, ish. Yeah, yeah. It was about that it's tough that to much. count that many at that point. Mercedes-Benz would not participate in another motor race until 1989. Did you know that that incident damn near destroyed all motorsports in the entire world forever? Uh, yeah. It, it, it's Switzerland still doesn't do auto racing. Because of it. <laughs> yeah. And it was so close because there were so many countries calling for banning motorsports at that point when that incident occurred. I mean, you got 83 people getting killed by one race car, you know, and it's like, wow, that is, uh, that was close. Yeah. We almost didn't have motorsports after that one. Yeah. But now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes because his closest call would be. Fangio's closest call would be the 1958 Cuban Grand Prix. They raced in Cuba. Yes, they did. Wow. The year before would be the inaugural race, and Fangio would win this race the year before. So he won in 57. Yes, he did. All right. I've never heard this story. I'm really, I'm dying to hear what happens here. Let's get into it. The Cuban Grand Prix was dictator Fulgencio. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Let me see. Fulgencio. 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 Let's just say Fulgencio, but let's just say Batista. We're just going to call him Batista. We know him as Batista. Let's just go with that one. He envisioned this race to be the Monaco Grand Prix of Latin America. That he wanted to showpiece. He wanted to be a showpiece of Cuban greatness on the world stage. Sounds like North Korea over here. Yeah. Batista was one corrupt son of a bitch. Yeah, that's fair. He was the strongman in Cuban politics after a coup d'etat in 1933. I was saying that because I figured my assessment was pretty close. <laughs> I mean, it's, he, it's not, but, you know, we'll he just keep stayed going. in the background of, of puppet dictators and puppet presidents. Right. So by 1940, he Oop. became president himself. He was, his regime was openly doing business with mobsters. American mobsters such as Lucky Luciano, Vito Genovese, uh, you know Hyman Roth, Michael Corleone, all those <laughs> all the Bugsy Siegel, all the Godfather. All was the, it one or two? two. Yeah, all, the, all God, the Godfather two characters. Yeah, all the Godfather two characters. <laughs> yeah, I just saw the map of the track <laughs> and That's the man that cool. was credited with inventing money laundering, Meyer Lansky. Oh yes, we all know him. But the United States was happy to support him as it meant that the government of Cuba was stable and, crucially, anti-communist. Brent, you said something about the map of the track? Yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's actually, Um, it goes through downtown. Yeah, it goes, it's very, let's be fair, it is rather Monaco-like. It's got a very narrow midsection with two outer sections that are kind of bulged out, and they go through the parks and roundabouts and stuff. So. They made their own carousel. They made their own rascass. They made their own everything. Oh, yeah. They it's made all the, a copy. all the weirdo names that you could imagine. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Yeah. So, let's see. Batista was ousted in a free election in 45, but he got tired of that shit. And in, 19, <laughs> and in 1952, he said, oh, we're having another coup d'etat. It's like... You voted me out. I ain't having that. Nope, we're not. We're not putting up with that. How can I be a dictator if you vote me out of office? So, with the support of the United States government and the mobsters, the rich got richer and the poor just got poorer. People opposing Batista tended to get disappeared, tortured, mostly by waterboarding, electroshock, or having your fingernails removed. That was kind of their mo. That's effective. Uh, sometimes they get suicided with two shots in the back of the head. Oh, sounds like the Clintons. Yeah, something. Yeah, sounds very Hillary-ish. Ooh, don't say that at all. But like. yeah, somehow Fidel Castro avoided that when he was arrested in 1953 by the Batista regime. He got arrested and he would be released. Wonder if he kissed their ass in just the right way. Don't know. He but he would be released in 55 and fled to Mexico, and then he ended up starting the July 26th movement. 
Were they really better off, though? Named after – no. Let's be fair. <laughs> no. Yeah, starting to – yeah, he would start the, quote, July 26th movement. It was named after the first failed coup and would rage guerrilla warfare against Batista. Yeah, we're not a political show, but – uh, Yeah, <laughs> let's just move on. No. Castro's 26th, July 26th movement found a perfect opportunity to embarrass Batista and legitimize their group to the Cuban people. Their plan was if they could kidnap the world's greatest racing driver – it would give them the publicity to tell the world about the cor- the corrupt regime in Cuba. That's uh, the pot calling the kettle over there, but yeah. not quite yet. It, we'd have to wait for that to uh, be prophesized true. Yep. So it was, uh, yeah, led by it was a team led by Oscar Lucero Moya, the director of covert operations. They went ahead with their plan. On the night of February 23rd, 1958, a command of three cars, all with Thompson machine guns Ooh. and handguns. I want one. Loaded th- with three revolutionaries, each and well-armed, as you would, stood in the vicinity of the Lincoln Hotel where the champion was staying. Kidnappers Emmanuel Uziel and Primit- Primitivo Aguilera. His name is Primitivo? Yeah, Primitivo Aguilera. How primitive. Yeah. <laughs> the That's base, a terrible joke. Basic bitch name. They entered the lobby and headed for the Tres Molinos bar. Uziel, Trey Tre Molinos. Yeah, the Trey the Tre Molinos I bar. I wish I knew more Spanish. I took three years of it and I visited no Spain, and I still have no idea. I couldn't be bothered is. to translate that shit right now. So, our, Uz, Uziel. Please, please find our ignorance charming. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he approached the group where Fangio was and called him over. Fangio said jokingly, what do you want with me? Uziel said, then said, in the name of the 26th of July movement, follow me. Fangio, looking at the 45 caliber pistol pointed at him, said, yes. Yes, I will. Let's go. You've made a persuasive argument. <laughs> See, 45. You got a big enough gun there? Holy shit. I think you would have went with a 22. I mean, you made your point, but I guess that's the whole well, down this anybody. is this is uh, pre-communism Cuba. They could actually afford a decent gun. Yeah. So they said, yeah, anybody move, you know, we're going to shoot the whole nine yards. Well, you're the man with the gun. So so they held them. They held the crowd at way and all the the staff and the bodyguards and security all away. And Fonzie was loaded into one of the three cars. And he all went separate ways as to not be traced and disappeared into the night. He was taken into an apartment in the city. He, they drove slowly so that they wouldn't have a car chase. They want, didn't want to be too much attention to uh, rain on him. My apologies for the facial expression I just had that the listeners can't see. I looked at the winners of the Cuban Grand Prix and it says um, Fangio, Moss, then in 59 it wasn't held, and then in 60 it was held and Sterling Moss won again, but the location had changed because it says um, it was on Malecon Avenue the first two times and then in Wikipedia it says Camp Freedom Yes, it was called the Freedom Grand Prix in 1960. Oh, boy. Freedom with barbed wire. And communism. <laughs> and Ciudad, 12-year-olds with machine guns. Ciudad Libertad, uh, Libertad Airport in, near Havana. I thought it was going to be Camp Freedom, um, Guantanamo Bay. I had no idea where, <laughs> where they actually held this thing. I'm like, uh-oh. But go on. I'm so sorry. the kidnappers, they made the most of their move and quickly informed the news agencies and radio stations that they had taken Fangio captive. Batista's security forces were pretty goddamn embarrassed. And they mounted a major operation in an effort to find find him and try to apprehend the kidnappers. Yeah, that was your job, guys. You were supposed to keep him from being taken by people who want you out of office. One of the kidnappers, Arnold Rodriguez, describes what happened. Out on the streets of Havana, patrol cars were screeching around everywhere. Houses were being raided and people arrested. You could feel the anger. All I'm thinking about is... (laughs) Feel the anger. They were pissed. All I'm thinking about (laughs) is Godfather 2 when they're walking through the street and the guy pulls the cop into the car and explodes a grenade on himself. Yeah, the rebels... uh Uh-oh. Yeah, the soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels aren't. They can win. Yeah. (laughs) So let's just move all our interests out of Cuba. Be on the next plane the hell out of here. Witnesses to the crime spent hours looking at books of suspects, trying to identify those responsible, and many and many known sympathizers were questioned. The only thing that the, 
we we must sound so ignorant because our knowledge of Cuba and the revolution is from the Godfather. <laughs> we're terrible at this. The airports were monitored to try to ensure that Fangio was not whisked out of Cuba. They wanted him. They wanted. They didn't want him flying out of there in case there was something a ransom or something. They had no fuck idea what was going on. I mean, it's not. I mean, it is kind of a big island. Let's be fair, but it's like, yeah, you don't want him on the mainland because then he could be anywhere. <laughs> You gotta at least keep him, you know, cornered into at least a little spot that you can find him in. The kidnapping caused a sensation around the world. This was a big news story. This was huge. Although not all the publicity was favorable, uh, writing in the Miami News American journalist uh, Morris McLemore was very critical. He says, "End quote." It is mighty poor revolution that has to strike a blow for liberty by kidnapping a foreigner who does not know beans for buttons about what is going on, end quote, he wrote. Well, I mean, that's not exactly what they did. They did it as a show of power. They didn't do it because of who he was. Well, because of why, whatever I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? They Wasn't didn't do who it he be- was affiliated with because he was right. famous. Right. Yeah, they just did it because he was famous. They didn't really care about his politics. Well, he continues, walking up to a man of goodwill who couldn't possibly expect anyone to wish him harm in Cuba and sticking a gun in his ribs takes as much guts as slapping a baby with a monkey wrench. Ow. That's a big swing. Communism, using violence to achieve its means since 1917. <laughs> and still to this day, yes. Very much so. Batista's goons weren't unable to, they were unable to find any trace of him. And that morning, oh, one of the kidnappers, I'm sorry, I couldn't read my own writing. That's fair. Yeah, that morning, one of the kidnappers had arrived in, in Havana and uh, talked to Fangio about the revolution. And uh, he had been with Castro and was very close to the leader. And he apologized for their actions, but explained that Fangio would be freed as soon as the race was completed. You could tell he was annoyed, but he never showed any anger, said Rodriguez, the kidnapper. Mm-hmm. Kidnappers planned on capturing Sterling Moss, too. He was not, they weren't done. They wanted to get him, too. Yeah, that would have been a real big black eye. They wanted to get him, too. But Fangio talked him out of it. Fangio said, he said that uh, Sterling was just married and it'd be actually kind of impolite and bad manners to kidnap him because he was on his honeymoon. <laughs> how dare you? How how unmannerly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to show bad form. We want to do this politely. Polite kidnapping with guns. I'm a single chap. You can take me. <laughs> Moss was actually married months earlier. He wasn't on his honeymoon, but Moss was... They don't need to know that. Moss was forever... He was forever grateful for Fangio's quick thinking. That was for goddamn sure. I mean, they were probably wingmen at some point in bars across the, (laughs) all across Europe as they traipsed around the Formula One circuit. Yeah. They were worried more about Fangio being injured in a crossfire with police. They took extra caution with their secrecy. Mm. There was no trace of them whatsoever. Uh, see that night he was, he was well. He was in a nicely furnished apartment, and he had like lots of room, heat, hot water, bath. They prepared well, yeah. a meal for him. They gave him steak and potatoes Ooh. and salad with peaches and cream and cheese. This is before communism took away the food. Hmm. And then after dinner, they let him rest. And you know, Fangio listened to their bullshit about communism and the bourgeoisie and other bullshit and blah 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 blah. And actually started to befriend his kidnappers, actually. Well, it's a survival instinct by doing that. Yeah. Uh, Fangio, throughout this whole ordeal, he was he was never injured. And frankly, he says he was, he was treated quite well. Well, again, it was a publicity stunt more than anything else. It was done by them to just show that Batista wasn't this all-powerful person and give him essentially a black eye like a media black guy. You know what I mean? Like give take his street cred down a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't meant for ransom. It doesn't meant to harm him. It wasn't for terroristic means like that. It was just basically their own version of publicity stunt. It it kind of it shows that he's a weak leader. Yes. That's what they wanted to do. Right, exactly. And it worked. I would say and it worked. On the morning on uh, the Monday morning uh of the race, the decision was taken uh Go on with the race without him. Mm-hmm. Going to have to show up. Uh, the race drew a massive crowd. There was like 200,000 people that showed up to see the race. The race was scheduled to start at 2 p.m., but it was met with a series of delays. 
Cars overheated on the grid. That caused another delay. And well, I mean, you're in freaking Cuba. And what the hell date was this? I'm looking at the Cuban Grand Prix, but I don't see a date of when it was. It was February held. 25th, 1958. It was probably still 80, 90 degrees yeah, out. It doesn't it's, matter. It's Cuba. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's probably humid as hell. Now, where was I? Hold and 200,000 people. That's probably the whole damn island came to watch the race. I mean, holy shit. Well, there was another delay, too, because there were rumors that the Rebels had released Fangio and that he was on his way to the race, so they wanted to buy some extra time to let him show up on the grid. Ah, they were just bullshitting with him. Yeah, because he wasn't released yet. No, he was not. These kidnappers gave Fangio a TV to watch the race on and everything. Oh, that was kind of nice of him, except the fact that they didn't let him race. On, on 3.30 p.m., the race went on without him. Sterling Moss took an early re, uh, lead with Mason Gregory second, and Carroll Shelby, yes, the Carroll Shelby was in third. Sucking down his uh, nitroglycerin pills the whole time. Yep. Third, running hard. On lap five, Robert Mieres dropped out of the race with a broken oil line, but not after pissing oil onto the entire 3.1-mile length of the track. Pissing oil. The next Wonderful. lap, a Cuban amateur, Armando Ciafuentes, in a two-liter Ferrari, hit a big patch of that oil, and went into the thickly packed crowd, killing six and injuring 30. See, that's the time, dude. Every single freaking race was complete chaos with people dying all over the place. And people just kept showing up. See, Fuentes, a local businessman who had not practiced in the Ferrari, was a, the uh, relief driver oh. for another Cuban amateur who at the last minute just couldn't make the race. Was he kidnapped as well? No, he was Cuban. <laughs> Red flags popped out, and the spectators started to run into the uh, streets. Some machine gun fire was heard, apparently fired in the air in an effort to clear the course to make rescue attempts and everything. But yeah, that, that'll get them out of the way. That kind of just caused panic. Yeah, that <laughs> had the opposite intended effect. Yeah, and some people claimed it was sabotaged by the rebels. There was a lot of rumors saying, oh, they oiled the track down, they loosened an oil line, but... The race is confirmed it was just a simple mechanical failure. That Terrorism. Caused terrible wreck. Terrorism. Well, see, if Fuentes was badly injured, he was taken to the hospital on the hood of one of the race cars. That, again. Yeah, again, 1950s. Makeshift ambulance. And while he's clinging to life in the, in the hospital, he would be charged of manslaughter. Yeah, because that's <laughs> he would fair. He be charged with manslaughter. This is why you don't race in third world countries, people. <laughs> You race somewhere where they have something called liability. After watching the race on TV and after everything was said and done, uh, just a little aside here, Fangio watched it on TV. He kind of gave a public statement in Seafuentes' uh, defense. It was his opinion that it had been an accident and that could have happened to any one of the competing drivers being present that day. So Fangio went to, went to bat for the guy. I mean, what if it happened to him? Yeah, he... After seeing the crash live on TV, Fangio asked for the TV to be turned off. He he was yeah, done. He had enough. He didn't want to watch that. He didn't want like, to watch, no, didn't that. watch that. And you know something? He actually expressed gratitude for the kidnappers, claiming that it could have been him in that crash, and maybe through some kind of way, through divine fate, intervention, divine intervention, that his life was saved by all this. Hmm. He probably had a lovely time. He had a steak and potato dinner. You know, yeah. He had there's some girls pudding. everywhere. He. There was girls everywhere going in and out of the room, and Fangio signed a lot of autographs in, in is custody. That in air, is that in air quotes? <laughs> signed a lot of autographs? So it could be both, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was Fangio, for God's sakes. Yeah. yeah, a lot of Cuban titties were signed. Sounds like a great time, honestly. Yeah, so, yeah. The race ended up being stopped, canceled, done. Moss got credit for the win. Batista was truly embarrassed, and the people around Cuba lost a little respect for him. At close to midnight, the world champion was to be released, two blocks from the Argentinian embassy. Boy, no wonder it wasn't held the next year. No. Arnold Rodriguez, who was in charge of this operation, told him that when the revolution was successful, he would be invited back to Cuba by the new government no, as a guest would. of honor. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> In their hideout, the rebels were worried about other matters. They feared trickery if they dealt directly with the Batista men, worrying that they would all be killed and the rebels blamed for Fangio's demise. What I doubt that's kind of bullshit. I, yeah. I don't think so. They probably could have just let him out of whatever building they were holding him in into the street and said, here I you think, go, have fun, and he probably would have I would think fine. Batista's men would, would say that you know, we rescued Fangio, not 
murder them and then just do that. I think that that's not 40 chess yeah, they're right not, there. They're not doing that. They're not thinking long game or no. No. But in the end, it was it was more for their ass, really. Right. To cover their ass. But in the end, they suggested that they contacted the Argentine embassy. And after negotiations with Ambassador Raul Lynch, a plan was agreed. Fangio would be dropped off close to the ambassador's residence and thus would be safe from his Cuban hosts. Mm. This also gave the kidnappers the opportunity to get away without being followed. Again, cover your ass. Mm-hmm. We drove him to the apartment building, says Arnold. When we went inside, we were facing some embassy officials, and the whole situation was very tense. I would think so, yes. You just kidnapped a man and then brought him to their embassy. Then Fangio broke the ice. He smiled and said, I'd like you to meet my friends, the kidnappers. (laughs) (laughs) Bad time to take a drink right there. (laughs) Fangio said, they left me with a letter to the government of Argentina excusing themselves for having used me for per- political purposes. So they gave him a, this is why I missed work yeah. excuse excuse <laughs> letter like you get from your doctor. Yeah. That's great. Well, they gave him a letter of an apology. That's fine. It's kind of, you know, just saying, hey, sorry for all the trouble. <laughs> it wasn't personal. While the media had little sympathy for rebels who would grab an innocent celebrity for their political purposes, Fangio was kinder to his captors. He said, it was just one more adventure. If what the rebels did was in a good cause, then I, as an Argentine, accept it. And you know what? I really don't know what that means because Che Guevara is Argentinian and he built work camps modeled after the Germans. Complete, complete, complete with the slogans that says, work makes you into a man. Not work sets you free? Just a little different tweak. Don't want to, don't want to do trademark uh, oh, infringement. Oh, yeah, you don't want them coming after you even though they're all dead. <laughs> They're in Argentina. <laughs> oh, that's right. They are. That's why he probably went to Mexico <laughs> that's it. or wherever the hell he went. Where'd Guevara go? I'm such Cuba. A, oh, yeah. I'm such an idiot. Well, yeah. He went to Mexico when Castro was exiled and they started the movement and then went to on, a, moved, on a boat and invaded Cuba and spread cancer. Yeah. Whatever the hell else he did. I forget. So let's get to the aftermath of this whole journey. Yeah. It's crazy fuck story. <laughs> April 9th, 1958, one of the kidnappers, Marcelo Salada, was orchestrating a strike against the general staff of Batista. A huge battle ensues, and many rebels were taking casualties. Salado was furious. Is this where uh, the Godfather kicks in? Well, in a little bit. Oh, uh, theirs Os- was on New Year's Eve when they did that yes. thing. Okay. Oscar Lucera Moya, the planner of Operation Fangio, tried to reassure him by asking for time to see how events would develop. Salado decided to go see his colleagues from the National Workers Front headquartered just two blocks away for reinforcement. Lucero ordered a, a, a commandant, Ramona Barber, to accompany him. When they both were walking around the corner, they were both recognized by police officers. And the worker at the garage there passed and pushed her behind a car so that the other employees could hide her. And the police machine gunned Salado. They Ooh. gunned him to fuck down. He was one of the kidnappers. He got gunned down. Yeah, he was uh, could te- technically, I would think they would call him an enemy of the state, correct? Yes. Yeah. Today, the National Sw- Swimming School of Cuba bears his name. <laughs> it does in real life. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, and recognizing his efforts to help make Cuba so bad that half a million people would swim to Florida to escape. That school is really good, I guess. Well, it works. Oh, God. That's funny. It's a, it's it, they actually named a swimming school after him. Okay, maybe that is a little bit bad. Let's be fair. <laughs> Oscar Lucero Moya had a worse fate on April twenty eighth, nineteen fifty eight. He mm. was arrested and interrogated in prison. He was tortured for several weeks for information about his network and then executed. He was high up. Oh, he was I, high up with Castro. I assume yeah. he was the he was the director of covert opportunities. So they tortured the shit out of him. He had electrical burns on very bad places. He was cut everywhere and his fingernails torn out. Mm, lovely. In the cells of the Bureau of Anti-Communist Activities, a message was found scrawled on the wall. That's his holding cell. Mm-hmm. His holding cell says, May 19th, still alive, Oscar. Nope. A day Not after any- that, he's dead. <laughs> Not anymore. Today, he's a 
Lucero Moya is a hero of the Cuban Revolution with a university named in his honor. Oh, okay then. January 1st, 1959, Batista's regime crumbles. He escapes to Cuba on a plane to the Dominican Republic with $300 million worth of cash, mostly paid for by the mob in the United States government. That's where the Godfather comes in because Michael's in Cuba. It's like New Year's Eve. And then he's like getting on the plane as fast as humanly possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Meyer Lansky gets out of Cuba. Uh, fucking Lucky Luciano gets out of Cuba. Was Hyman Roth out of Cuba by that time? Hyman Roth made it out. Fredo got kissed by his brother and made it on a plane to New York. No yeah, one that's knows where, where that the scene fuck came he from. is. And then Kay lost a baby, and it's all fucking sad. Did she lose that baby, or did she get it rid of that baby? It was an abortion, Michael. Yes, yeah, it's an abortion. And see? unholy. <laughs> see, all we know about the Cuban Revolution is from Godfather. <laughs> the gunman, the gunman Manuel Uziel and Project and uh, uh, Faustino Perez, who was the director that ordered this operation to Lucero Moya, mm-hmm. they became cabinet members in Castro's government. Mm. Yep, and the crash in the Cuban Grand Prix was the catalyst behind. Forty-seven-year-old uh, Juan Manuel Fangio's retirement. Mm-hmm. He ran one more race, the French Grand Prix, where he was almost lapped. But the eventual winner of the race, Mike Hawthorne, eased off the gas and let Fangio finish uh, all the laps under under the same lap. So he didn't get lapped. So he didn't get lapped. Hawthorne took pity on him because he's like, "This man's a goddamn legend. I'm not doing." He this was to a him huge in fan, life. and they were great he's friends. Like, he's like, "I'm not doing this to this man in his last race." Yeah, Fangio finished fourth. He famously turned to his mechanic and said, "It is finished." Hey, he made it to 47 as a professional race car driver. That's pretty he was damn good. Pretty goddamn. That's good. like Kevin Harvick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Fangio would go to go on to live a long, good life, and he would. He was a womanizer, and he would continue his the rest of his life to slay lots and lots of strange. Sounds like a great life. Yeah, he would become he would become president of Mercedes Benz in Argentina and sell tons of those fuckers. Oh, I guarantee it. Yep, he was actually uh, he was honorary president, vice president of Mercedes Benz for the rest of his life afterwards too. Like global, yeah, globally. That's pretty it, cool. Yeah. After he retired from selling trucks, twenty-three <laughs> years later, after this incident, yeah, in nineteen eighty-one, the seventy-year-old Fangio returned to Havana. Wow, he he wanted to sell thirteen hundred trucks to the Cuban government. Waiting at the airport to greet Fangio was Arnold uh, Arnoldo uh, Rodriguez. Arnaldo. Well, yep, Arnaldo Rodriguez, once okay. a bearded militant, now an official in the Cuban ministry of foreign commerce. Rodriguez de- remarked that during the kidnapping, I remembered Fangio had nerves of steel, great serenity. They hugged it out and everything. He, They had the greatest like, fucking oh, time. It's my friend, the kidnapper. It's my friend, the kidnappers. <laughs> While at a luncheon, Fangio, who was treated as a guest of the state, was seated with Faustino Perez, who had been the leader of the kidnappers and sent that down to Lucero Moya. Mm-hmm. Castro, the Castro, met Fangio with a warm receptor reception but no gun this time he didn't have a 45 on him yeah okay good Fangio died in Argentina on July 17th 1995 at the age of 84 wow he got a lot out of that life you didn't see a lot of those guys living very long either. No, no. no like Sterling Moss he lived until god a couple years ago he's lived forever yeah. yeah I mean Moss lived until 2020 but he was born in 1929 whereas Fangio was born in 1911 so you know, they were probably around the same age. Oh, you think that's the end of Fangio's story? Oh, and, God, and, no. And government affairs? Wow, Moss made it to 90. Wow, Holy crap. That's great. Well, yeah. think again, because in 2015, the body of the late Formula One legend, he it was exhumed. What? <laughs> they dug up Fangio? They dug up Fangio in a bid to finally resolve paternity cases brought by two men in their 70s claiming to be the racing driver's sons. All that poon that Fangio crushed finally caught up to him. It's not like he had to pay it. He was long Fangio dead. Was, Fangio was a poon crusher. He oh. really did. I mean, he was married until like 1959, 60, but he wasn't really the most faithful guy. You know, he he, he lived the life of a great Formula One driver should, and that is to just slay. Just slay. <laughs>
Slight just push. truckloads of ass. Yes. Got it. Well, he is also Argentinian. They didn't have front bumpers on the Formula One car or rear bumper, so he would go make one. Yeah, right. <laughs> make him. Jesus. So on the on an Argent on Argentinian judge's orders, they were taken. They were then taken to the morgue, <laughs> and they extracted DNA samples. They just couldn't even leave him in his crypt. It was like a big. They couldn't even. It was 2015. It was. A, it was a mausoleum. They couldn't just take a hair out of the mausoleum and just put or the they cover could, back they on the box. Just, or nothing. They couldn't just get something off of him. Oh my god. They had to dig up the whole body, take and it out take of the, the mausoleum. You know, complete with reporters flashing cameras and the Argent and the flag of Argentina draped over the fucking gurney. Bring them all the way there. Take a hair. Put them back in the fucking mausoleum. What are they hoping close to the get lid. out of this anyway? Like, what are they going to get from this anyway? Come well, on. Well, I'll tell you because the former racing driver Oscar uh, Chacho Fangio Espinosa. Uh, who had a brief spell in Formula 3, he claimed in a suit that his mother was one of the numerous women linked to the five times world champion. Chacho Fangio translates something to like Diet Fangio or Fangio Light. It literally does. Same great taste. Just less filling. <laughs> and, or, di- or, or prolific in any way. Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. He says the pair shared a years-long relationship in the 50s and it resulted in his birth. Another man, Ruben Vasquez... Also claimed to be his son, Vasquez at the time was seventy three, and he wasn't after money. He said, "I just want the paternity request that was stated a long started a long time ago, and I've had to overcome a lot of blockages and obstacles. There are no economic interests in my request. I just want to be recognized for the Fangio surname." He said, "I'm sure." Fangio's, uh Fosquez has said that his mother, who passed away in 2012 at the age of 103. God damn. They live long down there. Fuck. I'm going to move down there. Oh, wait, <laughs> it, that won't help me. The, no, you can't turn yourself Argentinian. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to help. <laughs> yes, his mother signed papers in the presence of a notary public claiming that Fangio was her son's father. I have no contact with the Fangio family, and of course I'd like to know him, Vasquez added. Espinosa's mother, Andrea Barrett, meanwhile, had a long relationship with Fangio until 1960. That was his long-standing wife. Mm. They were together forever, but then they split. Then the former racing driver is reported to have provided a bunch of letters that Fangio wrote to Barrett asking him as proof of Fangio's paternity. I think former racing driver is Espinosa. Could be. Yeah. In June of 2016, a DNA analysis Included that a third man, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, born in 1945, was the brother of Espinosa on a paternal side with 97.5% certainty. The his Vangio's first girlfriend, Barrett. Okay. Yep. He was born. He was born from another brief relationship with Susana Rodriguez, who was 16 years old at the time. Oh no, wait a minute. It's a different woman. Sorry. Okay. Fangio's paternity was ratified in May of 2021 with a 99.999997% probability. So he was Fangio's kid. All three of them were. All three of them were. All three of them were all Fangio's. So now, really? you, know, you know what? Yeah, it's fine because now anybody who wants to, anybody who wants to make money off of Fangio, hey, guess what? You got to make that cut to the family. So. Yeah, all the merchandise. That's what's how he, it works down there. It's like all the merchandise and stuff. They get to have a cut of it too. So what's he like? Uh, Formula One's. A, what was it? Attila the Hun or whoever the hell it was? Or? Nick Cannon. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> that guy can't stop having kids. <laughs> Pull out for God. Get the hell off her. Pull out. If you think, hey, this story should be made into a movie, then good news, it has. Oh. It, it was in 1999 there was this movie. It was called Operation Fangio. And, well, that was also the bad news because it is shit. It, yeah. It's it's uh, it's one of those uh, Cuban exploitation films that they started doing in the mm-hmm. late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. The Cuban government would finance it and get some Hollywood uh, communists to help fund it and shit. That's not hard to find. It's kind of like another Cuban exploitation film uh, called The Motorcycle Diaries. Yeah, I saw that at Yukon, Socialist Yukon. It, it's just a bunch of propaganda trope and cope. Well, a lot of it's film. It's just terrible. A lot of film kind of is, let's yeah, be yeah. fair. You know, it's 
finding a genuine story is very difficult without some kind of undertone nowadays. I mean, you guys, yeah, you guys forgot to mention that they traded one shit pr- uh, uh, political regime for another shit political regime. Yeah, like I said before, so great job, they, Cuba. You played yourself. Did they really? <laughs> were they really better off? I mean, let's no. be fair. Yeah, proof that authoritarian government just doesn't work it's like iraq when they got rid of it's like when they got rid of saddam hussein were you really better off not really saddam was a fucking mental though (laughs) oh he was a complete piece of shit but let's be fair was it much better after he was gone don't know not really it was probably about the same so it's like well that really worked out well (laughs) guess you didn't know until you try (laughs) to be fair well, then that finally ends the wild fucking story of the, one of the greatest world Formula One drivers, one of the greatest race car drivers. That's the end of his kidnapping story in one giant political shit show mess in the 50s. See, I had no idea that, number one, that he got even kidnapped, and then number two, I got smacked right in the face with, by the way, they dug him up out of the ground. Yes, they <laughs> like, did. Oh, Jesus. What the fuck? He was in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let the man rest, for God's sake. So he was an old man who won a shit ton of races, got himself kidnapped, and knocked up quite a few women, and had a lot of illegitimate sons. And dug, and yeah, you think you can awesome. rest? No, you ain't resting. We're digging your ass up. <laughs> awesome. Oh, so that's Juan Manuel Fangio and his kidnapping by Cuban extremists. Awesome. <laughs> If you like that story and the way we told it, please give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform. By the way, Jesse did work on it, and we are on some more platforms. I know we've been getting some messages about that, so we're working on it. We're trying to get you everywhere. Yeah, hopefully the RSS feed catches up to it, and I really don't know. But usually, I, hopefully it's, I, usually it's pretty I instantaneous, right. but, you know, we're working I, on it. I'm getting there. Trust I'm, me, we're I'm working sorry. on it. Yeah, uh, yeah, give us five stars. It helps us grow the show with that math thingy almighty algorithm algorithm, yeah the almighty algorithm that we just don't understand we have no idea how it works you you can just leave us a review five stars say whatever the hell you want you can say that pickles are gross or something like that we'll just say okay great as long as you give us five stars yeah i don't care even though i love pickles and i don't know where that came from yeah we are at race cars and jail bars on facebook race cars and jail bars at gmail.com brent is at i'm at brent gleason zero one uh you can reach me there and follow me on twitter and instagram at the same handle by the way if you want to hit me up on youtube i do youtube stuff as well youtube.com slash brent gleason i have a bunch of racing content over there as well and um jesse where are you at i'm here oh awesome um by the way next week is going to be our christmas special because christmas falls on a monday and we record on mondays and uh would you say that it's probably going to be the christmas special i think so yeah because we're probably going to take christmas off because we're going to be doing a lot of family stuff yeah so anyway um that's going to be probably the worst person we're going to cover on this show in our very short career (laughs) Uh, yeah it's going to be episode four i'm not going to tell you who it is obviously i'm not going to hint at anything um but as of this moment right now, the show is almost completely written. I am at 21 pages of notes and almost 10,000 words. It's probably going to be two hours. I don't even know. But it's going to be a giant Christmas special spectacular with one of the worst people you've ever known in racing. So that's going to be fun. That's something to look forward to. Yeah, look forward to that next Monday. That's yeah. going to be great. Yeah, very much. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.